Colossians chapter 1. We uh, typically take January and do some other kinds of things than our normal exposition. We are currently, as a church family, going through the book of Genesis right now, and so in February we will pick back up in Genesis, and we don't have a long time left in Genesis. We'll take a couple more months and wrap it up and move from there, but we typically take January and approach some important topics that are really essential for the life of our church, and this year's not going to be any different. As we've been talking as an elder team, I think we're going to have a bit of a new custom as we come to January, and that is we want to specifically take time in January and focus on the doctrine of the church, in particular how that relates to practical worship, the way that we respond to God and the way that we respond to each other. So we've done things like this in the past, but in particular this year we're going to approach it that way. We want to take a fresh look at what it means to be the church, both for the glory of Christ and for the mutual good of one another. And so we're going to begin that today by looking into Colossians chapter 1. We'll spend our time in verses 15 through 23. I joked with you just a moment ago about the, the typical approach that is often heard in evangelical pulpits on the first Sunday of the new year to try to hype people up and get them to perhaps return to old habits or instill new ones, and I think that's good. There's, there's obviously great wisdom and, and seeing ways that we need to change and, and pursue the glory of God. But I find myself entering this new year as I'm getting a little older now, realizing that there's nothing super magical about this Sunday. It's just, a, it's just another Sunday. This Sunday will probably not be one that you remember for a long, long time. It's, it's another day, which if we're being honest, those of us who are getting a little uh, older now, we're realizing that that's kind of what every day is. Most days don't stick out. Most days are kind of like the one before and are kind of going to be like the one after. So because of that, I'm always a little hesitant when I see the myriad of Facebook posts and, and other things that come through social media telling us that this is our chance to finally have a really great life or to make this year really count for God. And I think that's good on the one hand because it's important to pursue Christ with all that we're worth. But the thing that has impressed me most as I've gone through the years and understood the gospel more and more is that when it really comes down to what our hope is exclusively in the grace of Jesus Christ and that alone. Our hope is not in our effort. Our hope is not in our obedience. Our hope is in Jesus. Now, this text that we're going to spend time together in today promotes the idea of worship. It promotes the idea of obedience. But even that is grounded in the free, sovereign grace of Jesus Christ. And as one of your shepherds here, I can do nothing better for you as you enter into the new year than to help you, to help us as a church family take a fresh look at the gospel of Jesus Christ that will enable us to worship Him in the days to come ahead. So we spend our time today in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, that we might see Christ here at the beginning of the new year. So, my friends, you need Jesus this year. I need Jesus this year. This is not going to be our text for today, but in chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, 
Paul captures the idea of the importance of the gospel for all of life. Not just for unbelievers, but for believers as well. The apostle says there in verses 6 through 7, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And that's what we're going to do today. We are going to rehearse the gospel, which is the hope for unbelievers and believers alike. You need Christ. I need Christ. So today, we are going to talk about Jesus, who is the Lord of the church. As we talk about the doctrine of the church, the the truths that the scriptures reveal to us about what the church is and what the church is to be, this is the most important one, that Jesus is the Lord of the church. Let's rehearse what Josh has already read to us in verses 15 through 23. Once again, this is the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. May God's Spirit bless to us the reading of His Word. Here's what Paul is saying to us today. We are to worship and trust Jesus, first of all, in verses 15 through 17, because He created and sustains everything. Paul is encouraging these Colossian believers and us now, millennia later, that we are to worship and trust Jesus because he created and sustains everything. I have told you over the years, in fact, I told you just the other day, that I have a significant propensity toward anxiety and worry. It has been a crippling thing for a long time. And knowing a number of you, we see that in you as well. That's true for a lot of us. The question, of course, has to be asked, why are we like that? Why do we have a tendency toward anxiety and worry? There's a few of you who are pretty happy-go-lucky and you never worry about anything, but that doesn't characterize most of us. But why are we like that? Well, we see this all the way back in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and turned against God, which, of course, he warned them would happen. They, They turned away and they became scared. Scared of him, scared of their environment. There were vertical consequences for their sin. They no longer fellowshiped with him as they should. And there were horizontal consequences for their sin. Their relationships with each other began to break apart. There was conflict right away in the first marriage. There was conflict right away with their first offspring. 
as Cain killed Abel. And ever since, humanity has been living with the consequences of sin. One of the greatest consequences of sin is that we can't control our lives anymore. Of course, the reality is we never could, but we didn't worry before. We didn't worry before the fall because God took care of everything and we lived in perfect harmony with Him. But because of the fall, that harmony was broken. And we began to think that we could take care of things ourselves, but the tragic reality is we cannot, and ever since the world has been plunged into a world that's full of anxiety and worry. Paul establishes to these Colossians, these Colossian believers that their Savior Jesus is the one who controls and sustains everything. He made everything. There's not anything that has ever been made that Jesus himself didn't make. The writer of Hebrews tells us this in verses 1 through 3 of Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. How is it that Jesus made everything? Well, He made everything because He is God. Paul hints at this in verse 15 of Colossians 1 when he says that He is the image of the invisible God. We saw this over Advent when we spent time in John chapter 1. Jesus has made God known to us because He is the Word of God, because He was with God, and He is God. And therefore, as the powerful creative God, He has come and made all things and now explained God to us because He was God. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, "...yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things." and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. The Scriptures are clear again and again that God has made all things. And the New Testament picks up on some Old Testament hints that the Trinity was involved in making all things, and Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, was God's agent of creation, and is the one that God has sent to explain Himself to this world. So what Paul is saying in verses 15 through 17 of Colossians chapter 1 is profound. That Jesus, our Savior, which we'll talk about in a few moments, is the creator of all things. He is the one who explains God to us, and He holds everything together. What Paul is saying here is that everything that we see Trees, birds, skies, sea, we ourselves, that we would fly apart, we would disintegrate if it were not for the fact that Jesus is holding all things together. Paul hints at this whenever he is in Athens in Acts chapter 17, when he's speaking to the Areopagus, the, the religious scholars of the day, not Christian religious scholars, but scholars nonetheless. They are erecting altars to all these gods that they are intrigued by. And they have 
one erected to the unknown God just so they don't leave any out. And Paul picks up on this and he says to them, this is the God that we are to worship because in Him we move and live and have our being. What Paul is saying to those scholars, what he says to us today, these many years later, is that not only did Jesus make all things, but He keeps it all together. And why is that so essential for those of us who have been racked by the consequences of the fall with things like anxiety and worry? Why is that so important for us to know as we enter into a new year? Because this world and this year that lies before us will have plenty of that. There are plenty of things that we will face this year which will tweak our anxiety, which will tweak our worry. Most of us have our own particular things that bring those things about. It could be our marriages. Some of us really struggle in our marriages. We like our spouse and they like us pretty well, but marriage has been super hard. We're very different from our spouse. She or he disappoints us from time to time and we them. And sometimes it's just hard to make it on a daily basis. It's hard to trust them. There's lots of reasons for that, perhaps. Some of us have begun new jobs, new enterprises. And as we face the unknown of the days ahead, we wonder, will this thing work? Will we be able to hold it together? Some of us have significant health concerns, things that sort of stay with us all the time, and, and they're still there, and they're bothering us, and we wonder if we're ever going to quite feel better. And we long for the time when that might be taken away. Some of us have lost friendships in recent days and worry about the fabric of our friendships in days to come. Whether it's money or relationships or health or just the unknown of the days ahead. Frankly, for me, that's where a lot of my anxiety comes. Like, what does tomorrow hold? And if I'm being honest, a lot of times that really freaks me out. But think about what Paul is saying here. He is saying that the one who came and took on flesh and came to this world, who is the very image of God, the one who revealed God to us, made everything, and he holds it all together. And if we take time to ponder that, if we take time to, to meditate upon that, doesn't that make our anxiety and worry seem a little bit silly? Now, I'm not trying to trivialize anxiety and worry, because as one who has struggled with that for now close to four decades, I know how hard it can be. I know how hard it still is. But of the second person of the Trinity, the one who made all things and the one who came to be with us and to bring us life, if He all at the same time is full of power, not just to make all things, but to hold it all together. If He is our Savior, and He is the Lord of this church, which we will talk about in a few moments in greater detail in verses 18 through 20, can't we trust Him? If He feeds the birds of the air, if He clothes the fields in splendor in such a way that even Solomon never was arrayed, 
if he knows every hair of our head, if it's true that worrying about tomorrow cannot add one day to our lifespan, if, if all that's true, and this one who told us these things holds everything together, controls the tides by setting the moon the exact right distance from our planet, controls the growing seasons by setting the earth the proper distance from the sun and keeping, keeping it spinning around that sun and its orbit and perfect alignment. If, if there is one who has done that, if there is one who has made hundreds of billions of stars and knows every single one of them by name, if that's true, and it is, we don't have to worry. I don't know what tomorrow holds. It could be bad. I look back on 2015, and 2015 was hard in many ways especially the latter half of it, a very difficult time. It's one that, frankly, I would not have chosen. I said to you not long ago that as we grow in our faith as Christians, there's a reality that we come to grips with that God is good and God is in control, but often our lives seem harder than those around us. Sometimes Christianity has sold in certain circles as though it's something that will make your life better, and often, as we look at the world around us, our life doesn't seem better. It seems harder. And that is why these truths are all the more important to us. Until the final restoration, until the redemption, when Christ makes all things new, and sin and pain and brokenness and hardship is completely removed from this planet, we can trust Him because He controls all things and He holds it together. He's holding you together. I know that often you feel like you're fragile and that your world is about to spin out of control. But I'm telling you, that's not the case. If you think about it, this is sort of subtly at the heart of the lie of Satan in the garden. Satan caused Adam and Eve to question the goodness of God. And in many ways, even though Paul doesn't use that terminology here, that's, that's what we are to draw from this. That Jesus holds all things together for our good. And if we serve a God who is all good and all powerful, we do not need to assume His position. That is to say, very often we try to take up residence next to the Trinity and trying to control our existence. And we cannot. You can't control the economy. You can't control your government. You can't control your job. You ultimately can't control your family, no matter how hard you try. But Jesus is good, and Jesus is powerful, and Jesus is for you. And the Colossians were being tempted with heretics that had come into their midst, which were encouraging them to turn inward, to trust in their own righteousness. And mixed with that, there was probably some sort of mystical tendencies in their teaching as well. And that is probably why Paul says here that Jesus made all things, visible and invisible, 
thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Probably some of these heretics were teaching the Colossians that they were to be very aware of these intermediary angelic powers, especially those that were characterized by evil, and be very aware of them and understand that, and that was to make them these, these deeper religious people. And I won't go into all that today, but there was heresy that was creeping into Colossae. What does Paul do with that? What does Paul do with that heretical teaching about invisible rulers that we cannot see that are swirling all around us and threatening us with their power? What does he do? He sort of sweeps it aside by saying this, Jesus made everything that you see, birds and trees and galaxies, but he made everything you don't see. And guess what? You don't have to be afraid about what you see, and you don't have to be afraid about what you don't see, because he made all that too. And guess what's going to happen to all that? Everything that he made, seen and unseen, all of it is going to give him praise. There's coming a day when this world, the world that is allied to God, that has allegiance to Christ, And that which does not, that which does not have allegiance to Christ, all of it will bow in submission to Jesus. Those who love God, they will bow in thankful submission. Those who are hostile to God, who are opposed to the rule of Jesus Christ, they will too. Biblical Christianity does not believe in some sort of equal dualism, that there is good and there is evil, and there's some cosmic tilt going on out there, and hopefully good will win out. Human forces that are opposed to Jesus and unseen angelic forces, Satan himself, that are opposed to Jesus, he made them too. And it's no contest. And though Satan and his forces have power, Jesus will speak a word and they will fall. So brother and sister, what do you need to fear? There's very little that we're finding as we move on through the years that we can ultimately control in this world. But the longer we go, we realize that there's nothing we can draw outside of this world, but there is one who can. And so I call you as you enter into a new year to trust Jesus because he created and sustains everything. We are to worship and trust Jesus not only because he created and sustains everything, but because he is the Lord and Savior of his church. This is what verses 18 through 20 are saying to us. He is the head of the church. He's in charge of it. He's the one who gives it life. He's the one who directs it. But not only this, he's the one who gives it life in the first place. Notice that Paul says in verse 18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. We've already seen that word in verse 15. That word means first in rank. That doesn't mean that somehow Jesus was born into existence, that somehow He Himself was created. We know that's not the case because He made everything in verses 15 through 17. He was unmade. 
That word is used again here in the second portion of verse 18, this word which means first in rank. He's the firstborn from the dead. We know that Jesus was not the first person raised from the dead, so it can't mean that. What it means is he's the leader of those that have come back from the dead. He's the the first in rank of those who have come back from the dead. He has created a new people through his death and resurrection. In all, in Adam, all men die, but those in Christ are a new creation. They are made alive. This world, in some ways, is like a gigantic cemetery or graveyard full of dead people. But it's actually a little worse than that. It's a little less sanitary than that. It's more like there's a bunch of walking dead people all around, not buried in graves with tombstones, but they're sort of animated, but they are hostile to God. What's Jesus doing to all the walking dead? He's coming back and undoing the curse and bringing life. He's the one who's taking all those walking dead people and making them into a new people. Worshippers of God who were no longer hostile to God. And why is this the case? So that He might be preeminent. Why did Jesus rescue us through His death and resurrection? Well, it's twofold. He did it for our good, and He did it for His glory. That's what Paul's saying here. And therefore, we worship Him. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, He is worthy of our worship, and He's worthy of our confidence. The fullness of God, the glory of God and power and might and grace, it dwelt in Jesus, verse 19. And because He was fully God, He is able to reconcile to Himself all things, things in heaven, things in earth, And what has He done? He's broken down the hostility between us and God and made peace through the blood of His cross. Often in theological terms, this is what we call propitiation. Jesus has removed the wrath of God by taking our punishment upon Himself. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to chapter 2 again. We've already read verses 6 through 7. Paul calls the Colossian believers to continue in the gospel that they have received by faith. In verse 8 he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He's hinting at this heresy that has crept into Colossae, the sort of legalistic, mystical tendency of the heretical teachers. How does he counter that? Look at verse 9. For in him, for in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Well, taking that together with what we just read in verses 18 through 20, if all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ, if he is the fullness of God himself, and we have been filled in him, what do we lack? You don't lack anything. 
So Paul goes on to say, verse 11, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This first in rank, this one who leads a new people. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God has righteous indignation, wrath against sin. He must because He is God. But God is not just in His wrath exclusively. God is just and forgiving as well. And though we deserve the wrath of God, He has poured out His wrath on His Son. And if we will receive Him by faith, God's wrath will be removed from us and we will receive forgiveness. So Paul is saying to us in Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, this one who made all things, this one who sustains all things, he is also the Lord of his church, and he is the Savior of his people. And if he is all these things, he made everything, he sustains everything, if He is the leader of His church, if He is the creator of a new people through His death and resurrection, you can trust Him and you should worship Him. Paul goes on to say one more very important thing to wrap this up in verses 21 through 23. We are to worship and trust Jesus thirdly because He is the only hope for humanity. Paul applies these truths verses 15 through 20, to the Colossians themselves. He's been speaking a little bit more generally in verses 15 through 20. Christ made everything. Christ sustains everything. Christ is the leader of His church. He's the creator of a new people through His death and resurrection. Oh, and by the way, this Christ, He is for you. And that's why in verse 21 He says, And you... You Colossian believers, and I say to you, this church family, we who were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why? In order to present us holy and blameless, to take away all of our guilt. How should we respond? Well, Paul says in verse 23, we should continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we have heard. Very similar to verses 6 through 7 in chapter 2 that I read to you just a bit ago. So here's the idea. What is the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh. He kept all of God's laws. He died in your place. He was buried and he has been raised again. He offers himself to those who will receive him. And if we will receive him, 
we can live with Him and for Him. So brothers and sisters, what is the design of redemption? What's the purpose of redemption? It is that we can be rescued, restored to the original design, and it is so that God will receive glory, which means that there should be zero distinction in our thinking between being a Christian and being a disciple. It is pretty popular in evangelical circles to believe that you can confess Jesus as your Savior, some sort of magical asking Him into your heart incantation, and then never walk with Him. Paul does not leave room for that in verses 21 through 23. And this helps us once again return to the design of redemption in the first place. Why have you been saved? Why have you been reconciled? You have been reconciled for the glory of God. Remember, we already saw this at the end of verse 18. Why is He the firstborn from the dead? Why is He the leader of bringing the walking dead back to life? Why? That He might be preeminent, that He might be glorified. Jesus is not glorified if He has people who merely confess Him in word, but do not follow Him in deed. There is to be no distinction in our understanding of those who confess Jesus cognitively, theologically, confessionally, and living for Him at the same time. So in this new year, our confidence is in Jesus alone, but we are called to holy living. Now, I won't get too technical here. Paul is not saying here that there's major doubt for those who walk with Christ. That is to say, he's not saying that you rescue yourself by your efforts. The original language of, of these verses carries with it the idea that Paul has assurance, he has hope that those that Christ has reconciled will continue in the faith. But there is a bit of a warning here. If you've been a Christian a while, been in church for any measure of time, you have known people who started off well, who didn't end well. How do we handle that theologically? People who confess the right things about the gospel but, but don't live like it especially over time. Well, that's a tricky one. It's difficult. But we have to believe, according to what Paul says here and elsewhere, that it is only those who endure who will enter the celestial city, who will make it to the end, who will prove that they belonged in the first place. So the design of redemption is that we might be restored to God for His own glory. And He has saved us that we might reflect His glory, that we might be restored to that original design, and therein He receives glory because we reflect His glory to the world around us. It does not glorify God to have a person who merely confesses the right things about the gospel who doesn't live in light of the gospel. That demonstrates zero power in the gospel. It demonstrates zero affection for God at all. To be very simple about this, 
You don't just get to call yourself a Christian. You prove it by the way that you live. Now, even that is enabled by grace. Notice in verse 21, those of us who were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, Christ has reconciled us. Our hope for redemption does not lie in our own efforts, but we are to pursue Christ with all that we have. Look with me, if you don't mind, in Matthew chapter 7. You're familiar with these verses. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says to the crowds, verses 24 through 27, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. That imagery seems to lie behind what Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 1. We are to continue in the faith. Faith in what? Faith in the gospel. We are to be stable and steadfast and not shifting. Spent a decent amount of time hiking and backpacking on the Appalachian Trail. And one of the highest points of the Appalachian Trail is right along the border of Tennessee and North Carolina. <clears throat> and there's a mountain there called Roan Mountain. The highest shelter on the Appalachian Trail is right on Roan Mountain. As you kind of crest down over that as you're going southbound, there is uh, a, a place right on the border of Tennessee and North Carolina that you can see the ruins of an old hotel. It was called the Cloudland Hotel, and it was called that because up at that elevation, which is one of the highest points in the eastern United States, there are often clouds on, on top of uh, the mountain there. In fact, at one time, the Cloudland Hotel was the highest building east of the Rockies. These days, you just see a foundation there. It was a pretty swanky hotel back in the day. Really rich people from the southeast would come stay there in the summer when it was really hot, and they could escape the flies and the warm temperatures and so forth. Um, in fact, it's said that there was a, a yellow line that was painted down the middle of the hotel because in one of the states, I don't know which it was, probably Tennessee, you could drink alcohol on the one side, but in North Carolina, you couldn't. So there was a line painted down the middle of the hotel, and there were policemen that would hang out in the hotel, and if you crossed over that line with your alcoholic beverage, they would arrest you. But it was a pretty swanky place, really nice, and, but it's just ruins now. In fact, locals have come in and have taken the timbers and so forth and helped build their houses and so, and so forth. But you can still see the perimeter of the foundation there. But that's all that's left. There's nothing left. This, this, this thing that started off well, this thing which was sort of a destination in days gone by, is now overgrown with weeds and there's just a plaque to commemorate it. If you've been at this long enough, which I've already hinted at, you know people like that. started off well, things looked good, and over time it... It's proven that they never belonged in the first place. We are in danger of that if we do not continue in the faith. Now, now you say to me, how does that square with the idea that once we're saved, we can't lose it? Well, if you are, you won't. But there is a warning here. And this is pretty common in the Bible. It's pretty common to, 
to encourage the saints to continue. How will you continue? You'll continue if you hope in the gospel that you were granted freely. But you must continue. Look with me also in Hebrews chapter 6. This is one of those passages in the New Testament which has caused many great minds to sweat over the years trying to make sense of it. But it captures some of the tension of what we're saying here. In Colossians chapter 1, we find that Christ is the one who reconciles us to God, yet we are called to follow Him. In Hebrews chapter 6, probably something somewhat similar had crept in among these Christians. Jesus was to be their exclusive hope, yet teachers were coming in saying, you need Jesus plus something else, similar to what was going on in Colossae. In Hebrews chapter 6, the writer says in verse 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened and who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. They then fall away since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that is drunk, the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Will some of those who profess Jesus Christ fall away? Yes, we know some. But brothers and sisters, let it not be us. And I think that's what Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 1. He is encouraging the church to hang on to Jesus. Jesus plus anything else does not equal life. It was true in the Colossians day. It's true in our day as well. What do we need for this new year? We need Jesus and Jesus alone. He made everything. He sustains everything. He is the head of his church. He is the savior of a new people. And he is the only hope for humanity. And if we will hang on to him, we will make it. But we must hang on to him. And that's what Paul's saying. He says something similar in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And these truths are held in inescapable tension. That God is the initiator and sustainer of our life, but we must pursue Him. And so I call you in this new year to hang on to Jesus, but to examine yourself all at the same time. So, we are to worship and trust Jesus because He created and sustains 
everything. Nothing is outside of his control, including tomorrow. He knows what will happen. He's already planned it, and he's got you. You can worship and trust Jesus because he is the Lord of this church and all of his churches, and he is our Savior. He is the one who has brought us back from the dead, and he is our only hope. We must hang on to him. Notice at the end of verse 23, Paul mentions that this gospel has been proclaimed through basically the known world of the time, at least those that Paul could get to, the cities and towns Paul could get to. And as the gospel spread from city to city, as it has continued since then, the gospel gets proclaimed everywhere. And Paul gave his life for this. Paul became a minister, a servant. Paul was so overcome with the knowledge that Jesus was the only hope for his own heart. He was the only hope for these churches that he gave his life for the sake of the gospel. So I say to you, he is your only hope. And he is the only hope for your neighbor. He is the only hope for your unregenerate mother and father or siblings. He's it. So hang on to him and proclaim him. How do we respond to all this? First, we must fight our tendency toward worry and self-dependence through prayerful meditation upon the word. We will shrink away from this. It is our tendency, and brothers and sisters, it is often inescapable. How do you fight it? You fight it. You fight your worry. You fight your tendency toward self-dependence through prayerful meditation upon the Word. I am beginning my new year not with a reading plan all the way through the Bible. I'm beginning my year by going through the Psalms. I know my tendency toward anxiety and worry, and the Psalms give me a voice to deal with that, and it points me to Jesus as my only hope. So that's where my year is beginning in the Word. And I began on New Year's Day by going through through Psalms chapter 1, which most of you are familiar with. I am not to sit in the seat of the scoffer. I'm not to take in the counsel of the ungodly. But I am to meditate upon the Word. And doing so, I will be like a tree planted by rivers of water whose leaf will not wither and I will bring forth fruit in season. But it will not come merely by cognitively knowing things about the Bible, but by depending upon it prayerfully. Because you are like me, most of you, and you have a tendency toward worry and self-dependence, don't continue that way. Don't continue to trust yourself. Don't turn inward. Go to God's Word. We'll talk more about this in the weeks to come, but I encourage you to pick some way of approaching the Bible this year. If you're worried about the legalism of a Bible reading plan, don't do a Bible reading plan. But you have to be in the Bible. It is self-defeating to worry about legalism and then to go be a warrior and an anxiety-ridden person. It, It just doesn't help you. So don't follow a legalistic plan if you think it's legalistic. But you've got to be in the Word. And you've got to be in the Word prayerfully. And you've got to meditate upon it. 
it may well be that the verses that we've covered today, verses 15 through 23 of Colossians chapter 1, should be verses that you memorize. As you struggle with the anxiety of life around you, you can remind yourself that your Savior made everything and He holds it all together. Your Savior is your Lord. Your Savior is the one who has brought you from death to life. Your Savior is your only hope. Those truths are all there. Those nine verses are pregnant with meaning. So go prayerfully ask the Holy Spirit to impress them upon your heart. So you will never overcome worry and self-dependence until you prayerfully and consistently meditate upon God's Word. Secondly, we must help each other detect subtle tendencies toward self-righteousness. The Colossians were being tempted to have Jesus plus something else. And we will always struggle with that tendency. We will always struggle with the tendency to be our own messiahs. How do we fight that? Well, we have to help each other fight that. You need to have eyes to see this. And this is why point number one of our response for this year, for our sermon for today, is so important. If you know the Word, your mind will be discerning. And you will not only be able to detect your own tendency toward self-righteousness, you'll be able to help other people with that as well. We can turn anything into a functional Messiah, something that offers us life. But anything less than Jesus will not. It will always fall short. So we have to help each other. Not unkindly, not, not with meanness, but out of love. One of the most humble things that you can do in this coming year is to invite other people into your life to help you see this. We'll talk more about discipleship in the weeks to come as sort of the mission of the church. But invite somebody into your life to help you see this. That will help you glorify God. And thirdly and lastly for today, we must pursue grace-enabled, spirit-driven effort. Notice how I phrased that. I phrased it that way very purposefully. In verses 21 through 23, Paul is encouraging the Colossian believers to not shift from the foundation of the gospel. So he's saying two things. He's holding two truths in tension. That our salvation is because of Jesus, but we must pursue Jesus. So you must pursue obedience, but this is enabled by grace. This is driven by the Spirit. So what does that look like? It looks like you each day begging God to grant you the grace that He's already promised to go do what you should do. You don't feel like reading your Bible this week? I often don't either. I beg God for desire, and then I've got to go do it. I don't want to be a minister like Paul who shares the good news, the only hope for the world that is in Jesus. I often don't, but I beg Him for grace to want to do it, the power to do it, and then I've got to go do it. I don't want to love my spouse like I should. I often don't. I beg Him to help me, and He does. I don't want to engage my children like I should with the gospel, and I often don't. I beg Him to help me. And then I've got to go do it. 
I don't want to serve. I don't want to give my life up for other people. I don't want to use my resources, time and talent and money for other people. Because I'm a natural hoarder, I often don't. So I've got to beg Him for grace. And then I've got to go do it. So brothers and sisters, ultimately, everything that we have and every hope we have for the future is because of Jesus. But we have been rescued for His glory, and may we pursue it in the days to come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You made everything we see and everything we don't see. And You hold it all together. And You are the head of this church. The elders are not. You are. May our confidence this year be in you. Because you are the one who has awakened us from the dead. You are the one who has given us life. You are our only hope. We must hang on to you. And we want to obey you in the coming year. You're worthy of it. That's why you've rescued us in the first place. But we can't do it without you. So help us to to hold firm to your good news. And help us to worship out of these truths. Help us to help each other along the way. So Lord Jesus, help us to live in this tension. That everything we have is because of grace. But that we have been graciously saved that you might have our hearts. So in this coming year, help us to trust you those of us who are prone to anxiety and worry and self-dependence, self-righteousness, may we trust you, may we turn to you. And as we do so, change us. Make us holy for your glory. We are grateful for the redemption, Jesus, that you have offered us. You who made all things, you who sustain all things, you have rescued us through the blood of your cross and through your powerful resurrection. And now we, your people, are to walk in newness of life by your grace. So help us to trust you and help us to obey you in the coming year. We pray these things in your name, Jesus.